Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we continue our long march, our survey through history, inching ever closer to actually getting able to talk about Alexander the Great, because we're not quite there yet. Today we will be going into a history of the Persian Empire, which is going to be a little bit easier than our coverage of ancient Greece was. Because while the regions that the Persians came to conquer were quite a, quite ancient, the Persian Empire itself actually didn't last for a terribly long time in the grand scheme of things. The idea behind this episode is to give you the context of why this vast and mighty empire fell before the Macedonians and what historical trends, political and social goings-ons, going-ons helped contribute to it meeting its end. It's also just like a really cool country with like a really cool history, a very cool subject in general, I'm saying cool a lot, but it's awesome. So I am excited to get into this with you all today. But first, a few programming reminders for you lovely listeners out there. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast. That's right, underscores gone, just High Tea Obsessed Podcast. And don't really know, don't remember why I needed the underscores, but don't need them now, so they are gone. And you can also find the show on Twitter at High T.O. Podcast. And on there, you know, like I've been saying, we got the memes, we have context-free spoilers for each episode, and of course, updates for the show. Updates like, oh, I don't know, how about the fact that in January, I will be joining my good friends, Cross and PJ, of Words and Whiskey, as they along with Ben and Aaron of Howlerpod, embark upon a new series. And there will be more details to come on that, but we're going to be breaking down the incredible Greenbone Saga by Fonda Lee. And that's just like, it's so good. And if you haven't read that already, definitely be sure to do that before January. Even if you don't want to listen, just read that series as soon as you can. You can also follow the blog at hightobsessed.com, which will be more related this season than other seasons have been because I'll post maps and stuff like timelines, sources, things like that. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe to the Patreon for $3, $5, or $10 a month in order to get two bonus episodes and two newsletters every month. And input into future episodes and seasons depending on which tier you join at. Speaking of that, shout out to new subscriber Tim. Thank you so much for your support, Tim. And now, it is time to dive into the history of the Persian Empire, starting before it started and ending just before the reign of Alexander the Great. So broadly speaking, when we're talking about the Persian Empire, we're talking about what today is Turkey, the Middle East, Egypt, and parts of modern India. And this region was dominated, or these regions, I guess, these regions were dominated by a vast number of empires over the years, particularly the Babylonians and Assyrians who were in the area you may remember from social studies class, Mesopotamia, also called, you know, the land between the rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And then there were also the Medes and the Elamites who dominated sort of like what is now Iran, which is also the homeland of the Persians. At the time of the birth, at the time of the birth of Cyrus II, aka Cyrus the Great, as he would later be called, 
around 600 BCE. The Medes were the ones large and in charge running what is now Iran. And the Medes and the Persians weren't necessarily what we think about as traditional kingdoms or empires, but they were like horse-riding nomadic peoples. The Persians especially so, from my understanding of events. So there's not a lot that we know about Cyrus's early years, and much of what we do, air quotes here, what we do know seems largely to be mythical, if not entirely mythical, and is not grounded in a ton of reality. According to the most well-known account from our old friend Herodotus, known as either the father of history or the father of lies, Astyages, king of the Median Empire, had two prophetic dreams concerning his daughter. They featured a flood and then a series of fruit-bearing vines coming from Mandan, his daughter, coming from her pelvis and then covering the earth. His advisors interpreted these dreams as omens for telling his grandson would come to supplant him on the throne. Astyages summoned Mandane, who was at this time married to the Persian king, who was a vassal king of Astyages. So he summons his daughter back to the Median capital, which was at Batna, so that she could give birth in the capital, and then Astyages could have the child killed once it was born. The king trusted this task to his general Harpagus, who in turn trusted it to this shepherd, Mithridates. Now, Mithridates and his wife had recently lost their child, who was unfortunately born, a stillborn, and Mithridates passed that baby. You know, he convinced his wife, he was like, we can't let this baby die, and we'll raise it in secret, blah, 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 all that good stuff. Passes his dead baby off as Cyrus, and him and his wife raise Cyrus in secret. Harper just buys it, brings it back to the chain, look at this dead baby, no big deal. Now, Shepard and his wife raise the boy in secret as a commoner, but still, Cyrus's royal heritage, his royal bloodline, could not help but make itself known. When he was 10 during a game with some friends, he had the son of a nobleman beaten when the boy refused to obey his commands. So I guess they were playing like, let's say like a tops and robbers type game, and Cyrus was in charge of the game. Nobleman's kid did not listen. Cyrus said, beat this guy. And they did it. And this story made its way to the ears of Astyages, who sent for Cyrus and his adopted father. He said, I don't like the look of this. There's something about this peasant kid. Not too big a fan. And so he interrogates them. Immediately he sees Cyrus. He's like, that's my grandson. Interrogates the shepherd, confirms it's his grandson. And he says, Cyrus, go live with your mother and your father in Persia. And I think his magi, I believe, his advisors convinced him to do that. However, you know, he's mad at our guy, General Harpagus. And he has Harpagus's son murdered. And then, like, you know, prepared as a meal. Some parts of him boiled, some parts of him roasted. And then feeds his son the son of Harpus feeds Harpagus, his own son. And then he's like, how was the meal? Harpagus is like, you know, fire, great meal, my king. Brings out the head of his son on a platter and the feet and the hands. And he's like, boom, you ate your son. Complimented how good he was. Idiot. And then Harpagus, for some reason, was left alive after this and still, like, as general to the king. 
which is a weird move from the chain, I would say. Now, Cyrus was raised the rest of his childhood and into his like young adulthood in the court of his biological parents as Persian nobility. And my understanding is that the Persians were basically considered trash by the Medes. They were looked down upon. It was very much a junior partnership. So after the death of his father, Cyrus ascends to the throne. Still not an independent ruler, he is still a vassal ruler to his grandfather. And he leads the Persians and unites a bunch of other nomadic tribes against the Medes, leads this rebellion. Obviously, Astyages, he's not standing for this. He sends an army led by, who else but his leading general, Harpagus, to face down his grandson. Now, en route, Harpagus defects from Astyages, along with at least a portion of the army, if not the entire army. And eventually, Cyrus and his army defeat the grandfather, and he becomes king of both the Persians and Medes, who the Greeks tended to think of as one people, but they were really two distinct peoples. Now, there is a small problem with his origin story of how Cyrus came to unite the Persians and the Medes and, you know, get well on his way to conquering to that point, the greatest empire the world had ever seen. And that small problem is, almost all of that is definitely false. There are a lot of, there are, there are a lot of mythological elements interspersed throughout the narrative, a lot of tropes really about the, the types of stories they were telling back in the day. But I just like the story and, you know, I urge you all for more details on that to check out Herodotus on Cyrus. Anyway. Here's what we think we actually know about the actual history of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. It draws its name <clears throat> It draws its name from the founding ruler Achaemenes. Traditionally, three rulers are thought to have ruled in this dynasty before Cyrus II. Thespes, Cyrus I, who was our Cyrus's grandfather, and then Cambyses I, who was father to Cyrus. Now, depending on the modern sources we consult, it is likely that Cyrus did marry a daughter of Astyages, and it is also possible that he was his grandson as well. And it does seem like he inherits his father's position as king in Persia and then launches an assault on the Median Empire, and he's able to use Astyages' daughter to like claim legitimacy. Upon conquering the Medes, he brilliantly instituted a mix of Persians and Medians into positions of power, which solidified that sort of unification of these disparate peoples and also some of the other tribes that he had rallied together to unite the Persians. So it was just like a sign of what's to come, this guy, not just a great military leader, a great statesman. After Cyrus II overthrew Astyages of Media around 550 BCE, he begins a systemic campaign to bring other localities under his control. So first he conquers the wealthy kingdom of Lydia in 546 BCE, Elam in 540 BCE, and Babylon in 539 BCE. His army was super fast-moving for the time and used innovative tactics to overwhelm their opponents, hence the lightning-quick expansion of his empire. It has been said that the Persian Empire under Cyrus emerged to form the world's first superpower. And that might be overstating things a little bit. I'm not entirely sure. Like I've said in previous episodes, this is a little bit not my field, but the rapid rise and rapid subjugations of these other powerful states was pretty novel, at least for this region, this area of the world. 
which is I'm including like Mediterranean, Greek world through India type of thing. Because sure, like, you know, we've had the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they've risen and fallen. And in the case of the Babylonians, risen again. But Cyrus brought their lands and then more under control. By the time he died, Cyrus set the Persian Empire well on the path to uniting three important sites of early human civilization. Mesopotamia, the Nile Valley, and the Indus Valley. Egypt would come a bit later under the reign of his son, Cambyses II. But like he had established something that would endure for centuries and something that is very romantic to historians today, like uniting those three great sites of civilization. Now, Cyrus died in 530 BCE, possibly in battle, which means he reigned from 559 BCE to 530 BCE. And in those 29 years, he accomplished, just simply put, a staggering amount, conquering more than anyone to remember, more than anyone in history to that point. And it becomes clear why the Greeks loved him so much. Not only was he a great conqueror, but he was a clever schemer and a brilliant statesman. He was a very tolerant ruler, very lenient and merciful for the time. And he set, he just like, he set the empire on a very cool foundation for success, innovation, tolerance, and just generally good stuff. We're going to touch on some of the non-military stuff and non-linear like progression through his followers later on in this episode. But just take my word for it for now. It's, it's going to be cool. Now, of course, the Greeks being, and this is sarcastic text time, but the Greeks being freedom lovers, couldn't abide by a king and couldn't respect any barbarian who would live under one. But as far as barbarian kings went, well, that Cyrus guy was pretty all right by them, even earning the title Cyrus the Great. After his death, his son Cambyses II took the throne, who was named, of course, for Cyrus's father. Cambyses enjoyed a short reign from 530 to 522 BCE. During his time, he was able to finish the conquest of Egypt, bringing the fabulous wealth and rich history into the fold. And Egypt was not really down with being ruled. They proved a troubling subject for the entire history of the Persian Empire. This is possibly because of the actions of Cambyses, with allegations that he and his army desecrated the temples and perhaps even murdered the sacred bull at Apis. And that may have just been propaganda. It might have been anti-Persian propaganda from the Egyptian and Greek sources. The, the Egyptian sources don't actually have any accounts like this. The Greek ones did. Cambyses also conquered Cyprus in his lead up to the conquest of Egypt. So Cambyses is relatively reviled. It seems like a lot of that could have been that he took moves to really strengthened the Persian monarchy during his time as king. And then he also conquered Egypt, which was a place that the Greeks really loved. And so all the sources that Herodotus, who, is, who we base a lot of this on, all of his sources would have been very against Cambyses II, which means we would also tend to be. Now, after conquering Egypt, after conquering Egypt, Cambyses II died in 522 BCE while heading back to deal with a rebellion in Persia. However, he died en route to this rebellion due to a wound that had become gangrenous. Scholars to this day debate the identity of his successor, because this story 
is absolutely insane. But so it's either his younger brother, Bardia, or a median usurper named Gamata, who took control of the empire in 522 BCE. So some say that Cambyses II assassinated his brother, and, you know, before the news got out, Gamata assumed Vardia's identity, and then while, <laughs> while Cambyses was in Egypt, and then when Cambyses died, he continued the ruse and took the throne for a little bit. And then, like, regardless of whether it was the actual Vardia or the fate one ruling, a distant descendant of, of a distant cousin of Cambyses and the actual Bardia assassinated the ruler in 522 BCE. So they didn't even make it a full year. And it is likely some of the more outlandish elements of the story were arranged by the new king and his supporters to make him appear like a legitimate successor. Some of the outlandish stories are pretty crazy. Again, I urge you to seek out the source material on this. However, whatever's true, whatever's fabrication, it all results with Darius I ascending to the Persian throne. Now, again, Darius, I've heard, Darius, I've heard, I'm going with Darius. Darius was a pretty distant relation to the line of Cyrus. He was the son of a satrap and was likely a distant cousin of Cambyses II and probably not even related to Cyrus directly. Darius came to the throne in 522 BCE and ruled all the way until 486 BCE. He was immediately faced with rebellions throughout the empire, and this came to be sort of a trend, that whenever a great king died, all the different localities, cities, empires that had been conquered would rise up and try to overthrow. But especially the case in something like this, where Darius didn't even appear to be legitimate and wasn't even really related to the great king that had been able to unite everybody. So revolts break out in Persis, Media, Parthia, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. And only with the aid of his army and personal entourage did Darius manage to quell these conflicts. He also, so after doing this, he was able to carry on Cyrus's legacy of building a strong civil administration in the Persian Empire. So some do call him Darius the Great because he is really Cyrus's true successor in a lot of senses. Like he continued, he expanded the borders and strengthened the institutions and in it, like culture of Persia. One of the key contributions of Darius was the building of great cities such as Persepolis, which would become one of the empire's five capitals. All told, by the time of his death in 486 BCE, the Persian Empire stretched from Europe's Balkan Peninsula, and parts of what is now present-day Bulgaria, Romania, and Ukraine, to the Indus River Valley in northwest India and Egypt still. It also reached, so that means it reached onto mainland Europe, you know, threatening the Greeks a little bit from the north, and it included the Greeks of Ionia in modern-day Turkey, I believe. Um, so that's where we get into this beef with the Persians a little bit, or with the, we get into the beef with the Greeks a little bit. He's sort of the scepter of a lot of that. And more on that in the Directo Persian Wars episode coming next week. And as we touched on, you know, he loses the first one, plans on avenging the Persian defeat at Marathon, but he dies. And then his son Xerxes takes the throne. So Xerxes rules from 486 to 465 BCE. And he resumes the war with Greece, likely because he wanted to turn it, but he didn't want to just destroy it 
burn it to the ground. He wasn't super, like, you know, he, on paper, he wants revenge. In reality, he wants to turn it into a satrap. Get some of that stuff going. It's been the empire further. As had become tradition now, Xerxes has to deal with uprisings. And again, we're going to deal more with him during the Dreto persian War episode next week. But for now, what we need to know is that he assembled probably the largest army the world had ever seen in his attempt to conquer Greece. And this is where we get into the Battle of Thermopylae, the Battle of, and the naval battles of the Second Greco Persian War. But as we know, he's rebuffed, loses this war, and after that, you know, putting the final nail on the coffin, he abandons the plans to conquer Greece and focuses on building projects, much like his predecessors. So basically, we see a trend where, like, besides Cyrus, who died in battle, they reach the upper limit of what the empire can stretch to and then focus on internal development. Xerxes I did not meet a happy end. He was murdered by Artabanus, who was not his uncle because there were two Artabanuses, very important to Xerxes. The one who murdered him was a commander of the royal bodyguard. Again, this leads us into a kind of complicated and conflicting series of reports on what happened. It's unclear whether Artabanus was trying to take the throne for himself or put Artaxerxes I on the throne, and he wanted to be kind of like ruling behind the scenes, puppet master type of guy. Regardless, Artaxerxes kills Artabanus shortly into his reign and assumes full control for himself. He rules from 465 to 424 BCE, and this is where things started it a little dicey in Persia, a little gamey, not all the way. It gets worse as things go, but we start seeing some signs with decay. More on this later, but he was able to manipulate the tensions in Greece between Sparta and Athens in a number of ways, which he hoped to eventually do what his father and grandfather had been unable to do and conquer, conquer Greece. Again, the Egyptians rebelled during his reign, which Artaxerxes had to deal with and successfully put down, but it took him six years. Now, this war showed the importance of the Greek hoplite military and Greek mercenaries and sort of portends the role they will play in later adventures. So, Artaxerxes died of natural causes in 424 BCE. A little rare for a Persian ruler, we've come to see. But before that, he had hoped that he'd be able to ensure a smooth and peaceful transition, hopefully cut down on the revolts once he died. And so he named his son Xerxes II as his successor. Unfortunately, Xerxes II was assassinated a little more than a month into his reign, which again started off with those revolts, unfortunately. I don't know. just did not go well for Xerxes II. He was the son and legitimate heir of Artaxerxes I by his principal wife, Damaspia only ruled for about a month before being murdered. Um, unfortunately, he was murdered by his half-brother, Sadianus, who was the son of Artaxerxes I and one of his concubines. Now, Sadianus, a little bit more successful than his half-brother, Xerxes II, he had the support of a number of influential nobles and was able to rule for an entire six months before he was assassinated by another half-brother named... Nacus, also I've seen Acus, who took the throne and took the name Darius II. Now, Darius II began his reign by putting down revolts again 
and then he aids Sparta in the Second Peloponnesian War with Athens, which leads to Athens' defeat. So Darius II takes more of a behind-the-scenes role in manipulating the Greeks. He also had to deal with the revolt of Emiratius in Egypt, who drove out the Persians out of Lower Egypt, reestablishes a native dynasty. And it is said that though Darius II was king, his half-sister Parsiatis, who was also his wife, was the real power behind the throne. And she would even consider yeah, she would continue to wield considerable power even after Darius's death in 404 BCE. So he named Artaxerxes II as his successor before his death. But Parsiatis, you know, she's not she's not rotten with it. She favors the other son, Cyrus the Younger, as we come to know him, and encourages his revolt. So this is what we talked about last episode, ends with the March of the 10,000, Xenophon, all that good stuff. Now, Artaxerxes II takes the throne in 404 BCE, and soon after has to put down a revolt by his brother Cyrus. Just the quick footnotes, Artaxerxes II loses the battle, but Cyrus dies, and, had, you know, so Great Chain, he remains Great Chain, basically. Artaxerxes II has kind of a rough go of it, because he you know, almost loses the war to his brother. Fights a war with Sparta where he's just like absolutely getting destroyed and the Spartans are running rampant and then just loose in the empire. He has to cut a bunch of deals with the Western satrapies to put basically local monarchs, basically giving them a lot of independence and making them almost vassal states, more than true satrapies, almost. It's still a stretch to say they're independent, but they had a lot more autonomy than before. He also loses Egypt in 373 BCE. So his reign is remembered as contentious, especially because of all the revolts, but he also, you know, reinvigorated some of the religious elements of the Persian Empire. And he's also sort of remembered for, again, a lot of new building projects, including temples and the restoration of some of the structures at his predecessors had ordered. But between the Spartans running rampant for a time, the Greek mercenary armies proving their worth, losing Egypt, and then allowing the local rulers in the western provinces, it's a lot of dangerously destabilizing precedents set. Now, his son comes to the throne in 358 BCE, takes the name Artaxerxes III. He almost immediately orders the death of his brother and other family members, to try to solidify his power base enough of this assassination, put a new people on the throne type of thing. And he was like, you know, I see these Greeks were relying on these guys a lot for the army. Um, I noticed the satrapies seem to have a lot of them in their armies, which I don't love. No more of that, which immediately causes a revolt of those satrapies who did rely on the Greeks for defense. So he pretty ruthlessly sets about crushing these rebellions. And then he tries to retake the territory loss in Egypt and was at first defeated, and then eventually is victorious in 342 BCE. So Egypt was free for about 30 years. His obsession with subduing Egypt caused him to neglect development and developments in Greece, so he seems to basically have ignored and maybe not even been aware of the buildup of Philip II, and so that sort of, you know, didn't have his eye towards what he needed. Artaxerxes III, like his predecessors, thought that only Athens and Sparta represented the threats to his empire from that part of the world. 
and so he never saw the Macedonians as any sort of threat. And he was poisoned by his advisor, the eunuch, Bedoas, who then places Artaxerxes IV on the throne. Tough stretch for fucking originality. We'd had a lot of Artaxerxes in a row. Now, Artaxerxes IV, 338 to 336 BCE, was the son of Artaxerxes III and his principal wife, Atassa. He is known as Arces by the Greeks, which was probably his actual name before he took the throne and assumes the name Artaxerxes IV. Under his reign, Philip II of Macedon begins his overtures into the Persian Empire in 336 BCE. More on this later, obviously. This is like the landing force led by Permenio. However, like his father before him, Artaxerxes IV was poisoned by the eunuch Bedoas. Bedoas this time, though, poisoned the whole family and places a cousin of his own who has a small claim to the throne, like distant cousin again, but his cousin Artashta is on the throne, takes the name Darius III. And Darius III, who we will get into much more, much later, uh, is the king of Persia by the time Alexander the Great invades. Darius III rules from 336 to 330 BCE. Pretty contentious time, given the last two kings were assassinated, and Bedoas sought to use him as a puppet. When it, be clean, when it becomes clear to Bedoas that Darius III intends to rule, he tries to poison this cane again as well, but instead Darius forces him to drink the poison. Now, obviously this is a pretty contentious time from the start, not a lot of legitimacy for our guy Darius III, and there's some revolt dropping up pretty immediately, and it becomes apparent that he doesn't have a real grip on how to handle these type of things. And these problems all pale in comparison to the invasion of the empire by the Macedonian army under Alexander the Great. So we will get into him more later. There are a lot of differing views on his competency and ability to be a king, ability to lead, ability to be a general. Seems like he's probably more competent than given credit for, but again, I feel myself slipping into a uh, rabbit hole we will avoid. Anyway, all of this that we've talked about, these successive assassinations... Political infighting, rise of Sparta, loss of royal authority in terms of allowing the western provinces to become more independent, as long as they paid their tribute, of course. This all left the empire ripe for exploitation. Now, onto the cultural, civic, financial, and societal parts of the attempted Persian Empire. Although the bulk of our surviving sources on the Persian Empire were from the ancient Greeks, who we know were not fans of Persia, we can still tell that for all that propagandizing, the Persian Empire kind of slapped. They acknowledged the different faiths of the people they conquered and allowed them to worship as they pleased. Cyrus, of course, Cyrus II, famously freed the Jewish people from the Babylonian captivity, and they also kept local rulers in place when possible, although at first they made them report to the local satraps, and then eventually they were becoming their own, and like the local, the local dynasts were elevated. In order for us to truly understand the significance of Cyrus's policy towards his subject populations, it should be kept in mind that the Achaemenid Empire at the time was little more than a personal collection of kingdoms that Cyrus had conquered. His empire was held together mostly through personal loyalty to him. Over time, the imperial structure of the Achaemenid Empire became more standardized especially after the reforms of Darius, 
but it was Cyrus who, through his conquests and his ability to inspire loyalty, and his ability to inspire loyalty among his subjects, laid the foundations for this empire. Under Cyrus, the Persians created a culture of innovation. After his victory over Astyages and the Medes, Cyrus founds the city of Parsidatai on the site of the battle. Now, Parsidatai served as a ceremonial capital of the early Achaemenid Empire and was never meant to house a large population. And it is here that Cyrus the Great and Cambyses have their tombs. Cambyses the Second. Much of the land that Cyrus conquered suffered from a lack of adequate water supply. And so he had his engineers bring back an older like older technology, which was a means of tapping into underground aquifers, and this was called a quanat tanat Q A N A T, which was a sloping channel dug into the earth with vertical shafts at intervals down to the channel, which would bring the water up to ground level. He also encouraged the use of a yachal, which was a domed cooler which created and preserved ice, aka first refrigerators, no big deal. Another key development was his creation of regions known as satrapies, which were provinces of the kingdom ruled by satraps, or governors basically. These governors had authority over bureaucratic administrative matters, and they also had a military commander in the same region who would oversee the military and policing matters. Which meant, you know, none of them would grow powerful enough to challenge him, basically. By dividing this responsibility of government in each satrapy, he also prevented any of them from, like, amassing enough money specifically to pose a threat. And this administration of, like, the administration of this vast empire... The administration of this vast empire was made easier by a network of roads which was very important for efficiency in these ancient empires. These roads connected many of the major cities in his empire and would eventually become the Royal Road. And it worked like this. Messengers would leave one city to find a watchtower and rest station. Each of these were about two days apart from one another. So he would ride for two days. He would arrive there, pass his note. Another messenger would take it to the next stretch. And he would be given... After delivering the thing to be carried on, he would be given food, drink, a bed, and a new horse to travel when the next messenger came in. I think I've so I read it both like the way I just said, where each messenger would pass it to another messenger on and on, and then also they would like basically sleep for a night, take the new horse, and go themselves. Using this method, messages could travel immense distances very quickly, which was obviously huge and very like it allowed news of like invasion, uprisings, um, orders, all that good stuff to be moved in a way that was pretty much novel for the time. And apparently, the model of these, the motto of these messengers was, "Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds." The ancient Persians of the Achaemenid Empire also created art in many forms, including metalwork, rock carvings, weaving, and architecture. As the empire expanded to capture more and more civilization, a lot of new influences and styles were created from this fusion of cultures. Early Persian art included large carved rock reliefs cut into cliffs, such as those found at Nashi Rustam. Nashi Rustam? 
an ancient cemetery filled with the tombs of many attempted kings. The elaborate rock murals depict equestrian scenes and battle victories. The Persians administered their empire from several capitals. Etbatana was inherited from the Medes, but was perfectly situated to beat the summer heat and served as the summer capital of the Persian Empire as well. Babylon remained vastly important and was the sort of the financial hub of the empire. Susa, Persepolis, and of course Parsagadae serve as the other three most important cities in the Persian Empire. Persepolis was mostly a ceremonial capital where they would receive tribute, for example. Susa was similar to Etbatana and Babylon because it was the capital of the conquered empire. It was, in this case, the Elamite Empire. And so just because of that sort of heritage, it remained important. Because of their vast territorial holdings, which included both wealthy provinces as well as tributes from conquered people and empires, the Persians became incredibly wealthy, bringing in sums that would dwarf those of the wealthiest city-states. They also had a pretty massive population, with as many as 30 to 50 million people, depending on which sources we trust, which meant they could bring great armies to bear on their foes. But that, like, pretty much sums up what we need to know. The Persians were a wonderfully complex people, with an amazing empire, tolerant for its time, innovative, and great political, administrative, and infrastructure systems, only to be undone by personal arrogance, culture of court intrigue, usurpations, assassinations, revolts. And so these constant revolts by the subject people, overreach, like trying to conquer Greece, meddle in Greece all the time, all of this led to increased taxation on the people, which led to more uneasiness, uh, more uprisings. There's also increased independence amongst many of the satrapies, and the loss of some, including those in India. And so by the time Alexander comes to power, this mighty empire, which seemed super formidable from the outside, and still was like pretty impressive, as we'll get into when Alexander starts conquering, it was ready for the right person to bring it about its end, basically. And we'll see, as we get into it, that Alexander was just the person for this task, which I know I sent this whole episode setting up, making them seem a little bit unimpressive, still very daunting. Anyway, next week we continue with a discussion of the Greco-Persian Wars, and we're getting so close to meeting Alexander. Very exciting stuff. As always, if you did what you're hearing, make sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice, drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews, tell your friends to listen to it, all that good stuff, and be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Podcast and on Instagram at Podcast. So until next time, remember, if a unit offers you a drink, it is probably poison. So definitely do not drink it. Goodbye.